Hey everyone, Steve here. I just wanted to say a few quick things about the COVID-19 outbreak before our next episode. I realized it's getting a bit hectic out there, and since I know a lot of people have heard our conversations about COVID-19, I just wanted to update you all. First and foremost, please follow directives from your local public health authorities. They're working tirelessly to do what they can to stop the spread of the disease. By reducing the number of cases through following directions for self-isolation, working from home, hand-washing, and social distancing, we can slow the spread of the disease. I had a friend ask why we are all making a fuss about this, and while we'll get into more details about it in a future episode, I figured I'd answer it briefly here. Even if you aren't personally concerned about COVID, protecting yourself keeps it from spreading to others who are worried about it older people, the immunocompromised, and those with chronic respiratory or cardiac conditions, for example. Also keep in mind that the other problems that we face in public health don't go away in a pandemic. And also as we close schools, many students may lose access to their free lunches that they rely on. So consider giving to your local food bank if you can spare it. And don't worry if you can't leave your house to deliver goods. The flexibility of a monetary donation is often even better. Stay safe out there, everyone, and now tune in for our latest episode on From the Front Row, hosted by myself and Luke Sampson, who is making his debut this episode. Hello, and welcome back to From the Front Row. I'm Steve Sonye, and for this episode, I was joined by Luke Sampson as we interviewed Dr. Ron Durandal, the Chief Medical Officer of United Healthcare's Employer and Individual Business and also a senior advisor and board member at the United Health Foundation. Through her team's efforts, United Health Foundation publishes America's Health Rankings, which highlights annual trends in health. Since 1990, America's Health Rankings has helped identify key public health issues at both national and state levels. Dr. Randall joined us today to talk further about the findings of the America's Health Rankings report. This is the 30th year for America's Health Rankings, which is quite the achievement. Congratulations. Can you give us some insight into the ranking models for the report and how you got involved in the process of forming the report in the first place? Certainly. Well, first of all, I really want to uh, give congratulations also to the United Health Foundation and the America's Health Rankings suite of reports for three decades worth of population health data. The America's Health Rankings annual report is the longest running population health report of its kind. And that's because of the comprehensive nature of the report. It really takes a holistic approach. The model that we use includes health determinants, which is about three quarters of the ranking score, as well as health outcomes, which is the other quarter of the health ranking score. And each of those determines the ranking of the individual measures, as well as the state overall. Within our annual report, we have 35 different determinants or drivers of health. They include measures of our individual behaviors, the community and environment where we live, public policy that's happening at a state level, as well as the clinical care we receive when we go to the doctor or the hospital. The data that we put into this report is not United Healthcare's data. It's data that's obtained from 19 different publicly available sources, things like the CDC and the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, where a lot of the information around behaviors comes from. So this report in its comprehensiveness reflects an understanding of how those broader determinants affect our overall health. We can see how many of the measures play off of and influence other measures. 
uh, to answer your question about how I got involved, I started out many years ago as a clinical spokesperson for the report. I uh, was a catalyst for uh, expanding to adding a senior report to the rankings. And we always really thought it made sense to have uh, physicians and uh, healthcare professionals take a lead role in explaining what the report means to individual patients and population health. And so uh, as part of that, I'm also a member of the Scientific Advisory Committee for the report. Fantastic. That's a really good comprehensive <laughs> overview. And it's fantastic. You know, I was talking prior with someone about the issues that we see coming across America and trying to figure out, you know, where does this data actually come from? How do we get the data to make these decisions? And so it's incredibly amazing to be introduced to something like America's Health Rankings that has such a unique perspective into these issues. A key focus for public health right now is the translation of research into practice and policy. What is your team's vision for this report? What kind of focus are you trying to take translating these findings into actions? I'm so glad you asked that question because it's, it's ultimately the most important part of this report is the call to action. So in order to have a call to action, you want to act on actionable, accurate data. And so our vision is to identify the successes and identify those challenges and opportunities we see across the nation, but, but more so in particular states, in particular communities, and in particular micropopulations, so that we understand from a state policymaker perspective, from individuals, from the communities where we live, and also importantly from our clinical care system, uh, how to best address these public health actions. Many times, the successes that we see, and we'll probably talk about smoking today, are multifactorial. You know, smoking has improved in the nation. That's not because just one thing happened. It's because individuals made a choice to stop smoking. It's because public policies were put in place to encourage that to happen. It was because it was part of our education system. The, the new children are starting to smoke, uh, for example, and then clinical care, right? The availability of smoking cessation products, uh, et cetera. So you, like you just mentioned, uh, we've seen a lot of success in smoking rates in the United States, but there are also many positives within this report. Um, a 20% decrease in ch uh, children in poverty since 2013, a 50% decrease in violent crime since 1993. In your opinion, what are some of the most exciting findings within uh, this report? So in addition to the ones that you mentioned, and and talking about why they're important, right? A 20% decrease in children in poverty. There's a tight link between children living in poverty and their overall health throughout the course of their lifetime. A 50% decrease in violent crime. There's a tight link between violent crime rates in a community and the overall health of the community. Think about a simple thing like, you're not gonna feel comfortable telling your children to go outside and play if the environment where they live might not be safe to do so. So uh, th those are important markers of health in some of the 35 majors. A couple other things that we saw that are very encouraging over the last three decades, smoking among adults has decreased 45% since the first report in 1990. We started with about 30% of the nation's adult smoking, and we're now to about 16% of the nation's adult smoking. That's a great achievement. There's still work to do. There are still several states in the nation whose smoking rates are significantly higher than that, but it's a terrific progress. Uh, the CDC has called the decrease in smoking one of the greatest public health achievements of the 21st century. Um, one of the things that we're paying attention to that isn't currently included in this report because it's not part of the CDC's uh, BRFA survey is the emergence of e-cigarettes and vaping. And one of the reasons we're particularly concerned about that trend, uh, even though it's not in the report yet, is that no, those new starts have a tendency to be younger adults uh, and 
have historically been the ones who haven't started smoking in the first place. So that's a concern go forward. Other achievements, mental health care, the number of mental health providers in the nation has increased 5% since 2018. At the same time, we're seeing mental health, other mental health measures getting worse. And so when we look at the mental health providers, again, it's very community specific. There are some states like Massachusetts who are done really well with this measure and other states who need to catch up. Infant mortality is another success. It's decreased 43% since 1990, but we still have 1.5 times the infant mortality rate in the United States than most other developed nations in the world. So we still have more progress to make with that measure, but a 43% decrease is something uh, to continue to uh, move forward with. Uh, that subpopulation data that I referenced it's really valuable in instances like this because there's always states and populations that aren't faring as well or are doing better. So, you know, when you look at the percentage of adults who smoke, uh, we talked about a 45% decrease since this report came out. We're three, nearly three times higher in West Virginia than Utah. We're nearly four times higher among adults greater than the age of 25 who haven't finished high school compared to the overall uh, rate. We're nearly four times higher among American Indian and Alaska Native than Asians. Uh, we're nearly three times higher among adults over the age of 25 who have an income, an annual income less than $25,000 than those who have an income of more than $75,000. So that subpopulation data then really helps us understand where to target limited resources to continue to improve the health. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you make a really great point about um, showing health disparities across different subpopulations. In this case, it was really interesting to see between different states how things change. So you got to talk about the positives a little bit, but on the opposite spectrum, we've seen two troubling trend reversals arise in premature deaths and cardiovascular deaths, which have changed since the mid 2010s. Um, here in Iowa, the report notes that we've had a 21% increase in infant mortality in the past four years. What factors are we seeing to contribute to these patterns? You know, when I got involved in this report about a decade ago, we started to see some troubling uh, increases in things like diabetes and other behaviors, sedentary lifestyles, that made us concerned that the progress we've made clinically in areas such as cardiovascular disease was going to start to reverse. And we were hoping that that warning uh, would take effect. And unfortunately, we're starting to see that that prediction is coming true. So you're correct, premature deaths are on the rise. So when you look at the overall mortality rate, what goes into that? It's how long we're living, and we know that today's seniors are living longer than ever, so that's good news. We know that our infant mortality rate is down 43% over the last 30 years, so that's good news. So what's causing that uh, premature death rate to increase? Well, we can tie it clearly to increase in cardiovascular deaths, and we can tie the increase in cardiovascular deaths to two things in particular. Obesity has increased 166% since 1990, and diabetes has increased 148% since 1996. So we know that both of those are contributing to an increase in cardiovascular death, and we can't medicalize ourselves out of that problem. So there's not enough uh, health care resources and science, et cetera, to overcome that trend of obesity and diabetes with medicine. Uh, and then the next thing to take a look at is suicide rate. Uh, that certainly concerns us as well. The national suicide rate has increased 12% over the past five years. We now see about 14.5 deaths per every 100,000 people in our population compared to 12.9 deaths uh, five years ago. And that's 
across all age bands and many different demographics. Uh, we're seeing the rise in suicide. And then the last one is increase in drug deaths. So everyone's very uh, keenly aware of the opioid crisis in the United States. This uh, measure is of all drug deaths since 2007. Drug deaths have increased 104%. So today, 19.2 deaths per every 100,000 people in the population compared to 9.4 deaths per every 100,000 people in 2007. So those three things are the biggest contributors to the decrease in longevity. Yeah, I, that is a very interesting summarization where we're talking about this transformation right over these past you know, 10, 20 years now, especially with the opioid crisis. We've had the privilege of talking with other stakeholders and people involved in you know, how we're working to combat the opioid crisis, and it does continue to be a troubling and perplexing problem. We see that too with obesity and diabetes. You know, the, the built environment contributes a lot to how people navigate and exercise, and you make a very good point. We can't medicalize our way out of this situation. Um, so I appreciate you bringing attention to those facts. Another part of the report, you're talking previously about the addition of that senior report rank for each state. Given your background in geriatrics, what makes states like Hawaii, Utah, Minnesota, how do they stand out in those ways? So actually, those three states have a really nice range of different strengths that contributed to their strong overall performance in the senior report. And the senior report focuses on measures that we can slice by generally people over the age of 65. Some of the measures in that report are for people over the age of 50. Uh, but where the scores are favorable for those three states in Hawaii, a very low prevalence of obesity among seniors, a high prevalence of high quality nursing home beds available. So if the senior is uh, needing to get care in a nursing home, they're more likely to get a higher quality nursing home bed in that state than many others, and a low premature death rate, so more longevity uh, in, in the Hawaii state as well. Utah, which was number two for the senior report this past cycle, they have a high percentage of volunteerism. One of the measures in the senior report, we wanted to measure purpose. And so we use volunteerism as a proxy uh, for purpose as you age. So high rates of volunteerism in Utah, a low prevalence of smoking, which is also consistent with the younger population, and a low percentage of deaths in the hospital. So when a senior has a terminal condition for which there is no cure, more of them are choosing to receive that care through venues like hospice in the comfort of their own home rather than spending their last days in an ICU. And in Minnesota, uh, some of the strengths that we see there a lower prevalence of frequent mental distress, uh, a higher access to home health care workers. There's more home health care workers in Minnesota than in many other states. And uh, like Utah, a high percentage of volunteerism. So rounding out some really nice measures in the top three states. Yeah, and to that point about volunteerism, you know, right now I'm working on a report for Colorado specifically about recruiting and retaining aging workforce members. And one of the findings that we're coming across, too, is this focus of, you know, how can we, you know, encourage seniors to uh, pursue their lifestyle goals? And some of that is through volunteerism or through an encore career. Um, but it is a significant contributor to their personal well-being and then also their health well-being as well, too. So I, I really appreciate you bringing out those points. I not really realize them, but they are really important to make. Kind of back to the America's Health Rankings. One trend that I found fascinating was how high Midwestern tanks were ranked uh, 30 years ago. So these Midwestern states, we see Iowa, Nebraska, Wisconsin in the top 10. North Dakota was number one. Now we've got these states dropping into that 15 to 23 ranking range. Did you have any observations about that while you were reviewing the changes by the decades since you've been involved with this report? The most 
simple answer to that question is that those states have fallen behind in many of the measures that have been in our rankings since 1990. So specifically smoking, infant mortality, and something that both of those tie to, which is premature death. In other words, many of the other states where we see these national improvements have outpaced Midwestern states in their improvements. So uh, for smoking prevalence in North Dakota, uh, they've dropped in the rankings 31 since 1990. For occupational fatalities, they've dropped 22 spots since 1990. For high school graduation rates, they used to be number one in 1990, and they moved 16 spots down. Violent crime, North Dakota was number one in 1990, and now they're uh, at number 16. So as you look at each of these measures, in some circumstances, it's because those states have either had their values in each of those measures decrease, or maybe they've stayed flat or had small, modest improvements, while the other states have had more success. That's a good point. I didn't think about that with it, that you could just be, you know, at the point that you were previously and other states who may have more resources or more capacity could just be building up their infrastructure or focusing on those points. That's a very good trend to note out. The other one that I had seen was, you know, following the decades, we have five states that are consistently in the top 10, while nine states remain in the bottom 10. What do you make of this finding? Is it troubling that some states have not significantly changed in their ranking within the 30 years? And hopefully they're referencing the reporter, you know, like you're talking about wanting the policymakers to look at this and see what they can focus on and improve on. Sure. Well, there certainly isn't a one-size-fits-all approach here. And this, you know, it is, I, I'll underscore again, it's a ranking, right? So we have one rank for each state. Uh, not all states can be number one. And so as we're looking at it, the states that have a tendency to rank in the top five to 10 generally cluster around very strong performance on individual behaviors. You're generally seeing the states in the top five to 10 uh, rise to the top as far as being more physically active, smoking less, finishing high school, less likely to be obese, more likely to be physically active, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, there are certainly within each of those um, top five to 10 states, some exceptions to those rules. The lower performing states have a tendency to have the highest mortality rates, uh, the highest rates of premature death. And much of that can be tied back to things like cardiovascular disease, cancer death, uh, and then the preceding diagnosis to these like diabetes, obesity, et cetera. Within all of those states, in the top 10 states, each of them has some measures that are in the bottom 10 of the 35 measures in this report. And in the top 50 states, each of them has some measures that are very highly ranked, uh, in the, often in the top 10. So every state on this report has strengths and every state in this report has opportunities. Yeah, when I was going through it, I remember seeing something specifically where it was, I, I forget which state exactly, but they were within, you know, the bottom 30 side of things, but they had, they were ranked nine for the policies that they were implementing. So it was just this incredibly interesting thing to think about, you know, I would think that the policies would be helping improve these other rankings along the way. Um, so that is a very good point about the diversification of how these play out between states to states. Yeah, and I, I appreciate your emphasis on the fact that these are rankings to use the scale of like one through 10 or, or uh, bottom 10, it, it shows you something, but it doesn't show you everything. And putting everything into a rank doesn't necessarily tell you the good things that are happening in that state. So I appreciate you highlighting that. So going along with that, if you had one recommendation that every state should invest in, and you can stratify across states if you'd like, uh, if you can think of a few examples, what would your initiative be and why? 
So first of all, I'd encourage them to go on our website, americashealthranking.org, and there is great uh, chart and information on that website that shows the magnitude that each of these measures has on their state's overall ranking, either positively or negatively. And if you focus on, you know, look down to the bottom where there's the greatest opportunity, uh, you're going to find an area that will have the greatest magnitude of effect often is because that measure has a positive effect on other measures in the report. So let me give you a few examples. There are a couple of states who are uh, lowest in the rankings for many years on smoking. Right? If those states were to really focus on bringing their smoking rate down, it would have a very significant improvement in their overall health. There are a couple of states that rank very low in high school graduation rate. If they were to focus on improving that high school graduation rate, it could have really nice long-term effects on their overall health because we know that people who finish high school are less likely to smoke. We know that they're more likely to have a higher income. We know that they're more likely to have health insurance because they're going to be more employable. We know that they are more likely to have higher health literacy and understand the complex information that you get when you go to the doctor. Uh, so that's an area for states that are ranking lower on high school graduation rate. California, which has a tendency to rank well in our rankings, the rank that holds them back the most is their air quality. So uh, each of the answer to that is different for each state, uh, but on the americashealthrankings.org, there's some really nice actionable charts and information that states can use to understand where to invest their dollars and time. We have two more questions for you. Um... One of them being something that we ask all of our guests, what is the one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? That's a great question. You know, I think it probably comes down to some of the information that we find in the subpopulation data, which is ultimately what I find is really valuable in this report. So when, when you look at some measures like the level of education that I just explained with high school graduation, high school graduation continues to be uh, predictor that you will have better health throughout the course of your life. But there are two measures that high school graduation rate uh, has an inverse effect on, and that is drug death and alcohol overuse. So it's interesting to see that if you have finished high school and are more likely to have a higher income, et cetera, et cetera, that you're also uh, more likely to have alcohol use or abuse and substance use or abuse. So that's, that's a surprise to us. And then the correlate is true as well. So we talked earlier about children living in poverty and how uh, the lower lowering that number is positive for your overall health throughout the course of your lifetime. There are correlations between children living in poverty and vaccine rates. Children who live in, live in poverty nationally are less likely to get vaccines than those who do not live in poverty. But there are a couple states that have completely bucked that trend, and Minnesota is one of them. So that's a great case study of what is the state of Minnesota doing to ensure that children living in poverty are getting their vaccines where the rest of the country hasn't figured it out yet. Yeah, and I know that's a very crucial issue right now, especially what we're seeing with the measles emergence across the United States and then globally as well, too. I know that that situation is on many people's minds, so it's very good for you to bring the attention to Minnesota and how their cultural and you know policy emphasis has been, we want to make sure that these folks are taken care of, you know, regardless of what their income status can be, we want to prioritize vaccination within our population. I think that's a really good point to bring about. One of our other questions we ask folks is something outside the field of public health that you're interested in right now. Oh, thank you for asking that question. So I think uh, when, when I'm not at work, the thing I enjoy most is spending time in my community and with my family. Uh, I, I think that there's so much that we can get out of 
serving others. And so I uh, try to stay pretty involved in my children's schools and with my church uh, and uh, and also just, you know, shopping small and enjoying uh, the small businesses that support the community where I live. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Randall, for joining us. We appreciate all your valuable insight. Thank you for your time and review of these findings. It is incredibly exciting to hear about your role and the work that your team has put in. We look forward to seeing the progress that comes in the next iteration of this report. And thank you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. This episode was hosted by Steve Sonier and Luke Sampson and edited and produced by Steve Sonier. For more information on America's Health Rankings, please visit www.americashealthrankings.org, where you can view the report and explore the health topics and report data further. Our team can be reached by email at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. Thank you.